surrounded by Jews. Of course. <laughs> I think this is a recording. Okay, it better record. Okay, so last week we spoke about the history. If you received the uh, the uh, thingamajig, so tonight I was going to go into Modani and to to start really to start the sidur. But first, before we start the sidur, we have to talk about the structure of the sidur and how different sections are formatted and why they're put in in the orders that they're put into. So, in order to do that. Huh? No, not yet. In order, in order, we have a Mr. Brewer here. In order to do that, though, we first have to understand what kavana is, because to understand the structure of the sidur, you have to really understand what kavana is. And the problem with that is that kavana is a little bit of a touchy topic, because you know everybody has their own way of relating to God or talking to God. And it's I, one thing for personal prayer when people daven for themselves, you know, that you really can't give any guidance for because those are unstructured tefillot. But when it comes to public prayer and formu- formulized prayer, there is a set system for how to have kavanah, how to approach Hashem. And we really have to work on it. We shouldn't be comfortable with just saying the words like a lip service. You know, we can't just come to shul and, and mutter and mutter and mutter. It's what are we actually doing if we're just saying words with no meaning. It's, it, it's incumbent upon us to, to, to have proper kavanah. Um, there's many people who are good, God-fearing Jews. They pray three times a day, but the truth is they haven't really spoken to God in, like, months. And it could be burdensome to even start because why would I want to add one more relationship to my life? You know, especially one that could be complicated. So it's almost like... You know, like an awkward text message you never want to answer, so you just don't even start the conversation <laughs> because you don't know where to start it. So, in order to make tefillah meaningful, we have to learn to open ourselves up. We have to, we have to understand what all these high levels of kavanah are that we should aspire to and basic common sense um, solutions. So, what does the word kavanah mean? Some people, when you say the word kavanah, they all hear something else. Some people think it means to focus and to um, understand every word that you're saying when you read when you read the Sidur. The mistake with that is that if Kavanah just meant to focus, focusing is a limited skill. As soon as you learn to focus, you've learned it. You're not going to get better at focusing. When you know how to focus and pay attention and stay focused as to the matter that you're talking about and thinking about, you're done. It's like driving a nail into a wall. As soon as you've gotten the gist of it, that's how you do it, and you keep doing it. So getting higher, getting to higher levels of kavanah cannot be simply through focusing. Some people think that it means to daven from a fancier siddur. And, you know, it's true that uh, having a nice siddur can help you daven, but having some fancy Kabbalistic siddur isn't going to make you the babasali. It's not going to make you, uh, the, you know, the, the, the highest... Uh, uh, and some people think it means to have like lofty imaginations, you know. Imagine yourself in the throne room of God with angels around you. The more angels, the better. And, you know, the higher your imaginations are, the, the better your kavanah is. But, you know, it's <laughs> that's not exactly what kavanah means. And because a lot of people misunderstood what kavanah meant, this is why for generations we have people who have issues with kavanah. For example, we get into such a rote when we pray, like, it's almost like highway hypnosis. Have you ever, have you ever pr- started davening and you're like, how did I get to Modim? 
like you're driving on the road. Like, how did I get to Connecticut? You're, like, you're already there, and you don't. You're not even focusing on what you know. What what the words that are coming out of your mouth is a little bit. It's a little bit embarrassing sometimes. But even though the Rambam says it could take a lifetime of work to get better at Kavanah, you can't wait a lifetime to start. We have to start somewhere. We have to start practicing at some time. So in Hebrew, what does the word Kavanah mean? So the word Lechaven literally means to aim. It doesn't mean to think. It doesn't mean to, to feel. It doesn't mean to imagine. It means to aim. And the reason is because it means to direct your consciousness towards a, a goal or a place it wants to be. To direct your consciousness towards a state of consciousness which it wants to be at. And this could be used in different contexts. Kavanah could be used in all sorts of meditations. You're directing your consciousness towards a certain direction or place. Now that can get very technical very fast. So I want to slow down. Where did we, where's the first place we learned Kavanah from? So before the Beit HaMikdash, the first Beit HaMikdash was even built. The Mishkan was in Shiloh. And there's a famous story of Hana the Neviah, who was praying for her son, Shmuel Hanavi. And she went to the Mishkan Shiloh to pray. We all know the story. And uh, Eli saw her and chastised her. She, re- she responded. There's a whole story there in Shmuel, how she was blessed with her son. So the, the Sukim over there describe how she prayed and what she was praying. So Gemara here is a short Gemara, so I didn't print it out in uh, Brachot. The bottom of Lamed Aleph, Lamed Aleph. It says, Amar Ev Hamnuna, Kama Halchata Gavrvuta Ikali Meshma Mehanei Krai Dechana. How many mighty halachot we can learn from the, from these psukim by Chana? The pasuk says, Vechana Him Medaberet Aliba, and Chana was speaking to her heart. Mikan LeMitpalel Tzarich Sheikhaven Libo. From here we see that a person who prays has to be Mechaven his his heart. He has to direct his heart in prayer. So this pasuk uses an interesting lashon. She was speaking to her heart. In Breshit, it says, "Ve'yomer Hashem elibo." Hashem said, "quote unquote," metaphorically, to his heart. I think it's by Noach he says this. So the midrash says over there, "Hadishaim." It makes a comparison. Sometimes the Torah says, "Ve'yomer elibo," and sometimes it says, "bilibo," in his heart. So the Midrash explains. It says, Wicked people are in the power, under the dominion of their heart. How do we know that? The Psukim say by the Rishayim, Bilibo. Amar Naval, Bilibo. Amar Esav, Bilibo. Vayomer Yiravan, Bilibo. And famously, Vayomer Haman, Bilibo. And Haman said, in his heart. And that's because they were under the power of their heart and their passions and desires control their entire id, their entire, all their desires, that is who they are. And therefore they're in that control, and that's why it says bilibo. Aval tzadikim, but tzadikim, liban shutan. Their heart, their passions, their desires is underneath their power. The Pesukim say this, v'chana hi medaberet aliba, v'yomer David elibo, v'yasem Daniel alibo, v'yomer Hashem elibo. That's the Midrash. Midrash says that they can speak to their heart, which means that they are on a higher state of consciousness than their heart, and they can look down, or not quite down, but they can control and dominate all of their emotions when they pray or when they think and at all times. So all of this comes from a, a skill known as meditation. So meditation is something that 
you know, is inherently Jewish. It's been part of Judaism since the time of the Nevi'im. It's part of the Kabbalah, is the meditative Kabbalah. Um, the, Jew the Jewish system of meditation is among the most advanced in the world. We have very serious, very um, structured and unstructured meditations. But many people today don't really know much about it. In Hebrew, it's known as Hitzbodedut. And in general, it's not a complicated matter. It's just our perceptions of it are complicated. Whenever we hear the word meditation, we think of some Asian person sitting in a lotus position. That's what meditation means. But it literally, the word Hitzbodedut means to isolate yourself, to, to, you know, to come in with yourself and to be alone. But it's a tool, just like rhyme, worship, prayer. It's a tool. And it's a tool we use for Avodat Hashem, and it's one that we all kind of have to practice a little bit if we're going to get better at tefillah. So let's start, start talking about the higher level of meditations first. There's four main meditations that we have to know about for tefillah. The first is called mindfulness meditation. This one's really popular in America. They make apps for mindfulness meditation. They use it in clinical, uh, in, in clinical relaxation techniques. This is basically learning to be mindful of your thoughts, watching your thoughts come and go without judgment, breathing um, in sync, concentrating on your thoughts or your physical um, stimulus. So you can start to control your breathing, start to think about your breathing, you can start to think, I mean, they coach you through it, and to think about your thoughts and let your thoughts come and go, watch them come and go, try to calm your mind, listen to the sounds, maybe there's a clock ticking, follow the clock ticking. These mindfulness meditations are very basic, very good at relaxing the body and relaxing the mind. This is a meditation that we actually can use in tefillah, because mindfulness, when you get better at focusing your senses on a single sensation, this is useful for the part of tefillah where we thank God for our physical sensations, hence the morning. In the morning we say, The Ramam says that only when you hear the rooster should you say such things. We don't hold like that. But when you open your eyes, when you put on your belt, we say, When you lift up your back, we say, Learning to meditate on those feelings of, for example, opening your eyes or feeling your back get up straight and it's not broken. All of those are mindfulness meditations. We use mindfulness meditation to be mindful of our breathing in the morning and thanking God for everything that we do in the morning. The next one is contemplation. Contemplation is sometimes called hitzbonenut. Um, and it could be used in many different ways. To, to contemplate means literally to take an idea, any idea, and let it fill your entire mind. So this could be done a number of ways. You could do it externally or internally. You could, for example, do it on a tree, or you could do it on the idea of anger in your head. Um, it could be structured. For example, you could say, I'm going to do five minutes of thinking about the tree, and then five minutes of thinking about uh, how great a tree is, and then five minutes to think about God. Or it could be unstructured, and you could go from the tree, start thinking about the tree, and then how great the cosmos are, and the stars, and the whole creation, and how magnificent God's works are. That's an unstructured med meditation. Or you could do the same with anger. You could spend ten minutes thinking about how anger bothers you, um, how you can get better at it. Um, contemplation is really, really good for these kinds of things, because tikkun hamidot in the Jewish... Um, if we want to fix your, your midot according to the Torah and you don't want to use, let's say, clinical uh, methods, the only way, to, if this, you want to be spiritual, this is, a, this is a religion, we have spiritual ways to get 
to, to be metakin or midot, and one of those ways is contemplation. People, ca- let's say you spend two weeks every day, 20 minutes thinking about anger. Then next two weeks, you spend 20 minutes every day thinking about your love. 20 minutes every day spending, thinking about sadness. Eventually, you learn how it affects you, how you feel about it, and you get a much better control over that emotion, and then you can dial it up and dial it down at will. This is what masters of meditation can do. Masters of meditation have complete power over their emotions, and that's because they've practiced on, they practice on contemplation and on working on themselves. They don't take an action without deciding to take that action. For example, Shabbat comes, they stop grieving. If Yom Tov comes, they dial up Simcha because they know their emotions, they know exactly how to control them, and they're in better touch with these ideas and how they affect themselves. That's contemplation. We use contemplation in the shvach section of davening. That's where we let certain ideas fill our minds. And, for example, in the Halalukas, we talk about the, grand, the grandeur of the world, the grandeur of Hashem. We, th- we talk about the cosmos, different um, aspects of creation. Baruch Shamar talks about the creation of the world. We let these ideas fill our mind, and that's a way of praising Hashem because the magnificence of these ideas leads us more to loving Hashem. The next one is known as mantra meditation. Mantra meditation is very advanced. Um, there is simple. There are simple mantra meditations one can do. For example, Nachman Vibrasov says, you know, over and over and over, say, focus on the words. And basically the idea is to repeat a word or a phrase over and over and over. The reason it's advanced is because it leads you to a state of consciousness above thought, really. So this is used in higher level meditations, like Mikvalim used this in very specific ways. Um, it's not for beginners at all. However, Shimona Esrei was actually written as a mantra meditation. So Shimona Esrei, unbeknownst to most people, is actually a mantra meditation. And mantra meditations, the results are cumulative. The more times you say it, the higher state of consciousness you get to, which is why we say Shimona Esrei again and again and again and again over throughout our lives, because the more we do it, the better you can actually get at it. So mantra meditations let you get to a state of consciousness higher than many other uh, meditations, but again, the advanced things belong where they belong. We're not saying Shem Hashem's 101 times here, you know, to get ourselves into some gate of Shemayim, or I don't know what, <laughs> I'm making this up a little bit. Not entirely, but a little bit. Um, the last one, which we find in Tefillah, but more rare, is a type of meditation called visualization. Visualization means, exactly as it sounds, basically, to be able to visualize something either in your field of view or in your space of mind to be able to fully visualize it. So, for example, on the first page of Shulchan Aruch, it says in the Ber Tev, most people have no idea what this means. Um, this is an Aleph, I could, whatever. He says that, he says that a segula for um, Shemira is Litzayer Shem Yud Ke with these Nekudot in the bottom right side of your vision. And for 200 years, people have been learning this Ber Tev and they have no idea what it's talking about because in the past 200 years, we've lost a lot of knowledge about meditation. A lot of people have stopped doing meditations in the past 200 years and there's very little, very few Jews know that it's such an integral, integral part of Judaism. But Litzayer is a type of meditation where you can, like, like a screen, like a heads-up display, you can emblazon into your literal field of vision the letters Yud-K, Vav-K with the Nekudot into your vision and it's as if you're seeing them. You could do it in your, inside your mind. You could imagine, especially we do this um, with letters of the Aleph Bet to emblazon these letters into your mind. It takes a lot of practice. You might have to start with something visual in front of you. You start, um, you know, 
focusing on the letters until you could close your eyes and still see the letters. It takes a lot of practice to get really good at this. It could take weeks. But this was something that was done for a long time. Visualizations are much more, are fairly advanced. They're not so advanced, but they're fairly advanced. The time, the reason I'm, I'm only, only reason I'm bringing it up is because it's so pronounced in the Sfaradi Sidur. We see the Lam Natseach in the shape of the menorah. That's there in order to be able to learn how to do it inside your, your mental space. And that is to structure the entire, um, inside your mental space, to structure the entire perak of the Tehillim into the shape of the menorah and follow it down and up and down and up and down and up. That is a visualization. Why we do that, I don't know. I haven't gotten up to it yet. I'm not sure what that meditation does. Probably something Kabbalistic. But that's why visualization is important in... Um, in tefillah. So we had mindfulness, contemplation, mantra, and visualization. So sometimes there are contemplations in tefillah also that can happen slightly outside of tefillah, sometimes um, somewhat inside tefillah. So if you remember the first year, we spoke a little bit about the paradoxes of tefillah and what's right and what's wrong. How could we daven for things? You know, why should we daven for things? One of the paradoxes in tefillah that I didn't mention is that tefillah is an avodah, it's a service, it's a sacrifice, right? We should be serving our God. The problem with that is very obvious. If I'm sacrificing or servicing my God, what kind of chutzpah is it for me to ask for things? It's like a servant coming in to, to, to do the dishes, and his job is to do the dishes, and he's asking for money, like he's asking for millions of dollars, like you're a, you're a slave. What are you doing? What kind of chutzpah is it for a servant or someone who should be doing sacrifices? Uh, what kind of chutzpah is it for us to ask for things? It's a little bit counterintuitive. But by better understanding meditation, you could get a better sense of what the solution is to that. So we said that the solution to this was that we're not asking God to change his mind. We're, asking, we're trying to change ourselves. We're trying to, to do teshuvah and get closer to God and make our will more like God. Therefore, because we're trying to change ourselves, we change ourselves and we make ourselves more ra'ui, um, more, more uh, capable of receiving God's goodness. Because more, uh, what's the word? What's a good word, English word for ra'ui? <laughs> we make ourselves more eligible to receive God's goodness. More eligible, I think, is the right word. So... When it comes to bakashot, when it comes to asking things, petitionary prayer, we're either going to change ourselves, make ourselves more, um, what do you call it? We're either going to make ourselves more worthy of what, we, what it is we want. Or what we could do is when we ask Hashem for things is we could figure out, we could do some introspection and figure out if that thing that we want is something we actually want or is it something, or align it with your wants for God. Like, do I need this in my life for Hashem or do I need this in my life for myself? Lastly, what you could do is nullify that want entirely. Because if you think about it, Ratzon is something really higher. But Tatz talks about this. He says that, you know, if you, if you look at the causation of your mind, you, everything you want to do is basically determined. You like this because you like this. You like that because you like that. You made this decision because you made that decision. But eventually, if you trace the causation all the way back, you're going to find an uncaused cause. You're going to find something which you did for no other reason than because you wanted to. It wasn't for a thought. It wasn't for a decision. It's because you just wanted to. That part of your thought process is known as ratzon, your will, your desire. And that's why it's a source. Mikar is the same gematria as ratzon. That's the source of, every, of all of your will and all the things inside of you. 
So when you're trying to ask for bakasha, what we're actually doing is a self-nullification. We're nullifying all the things that we want, and we're traveling up the chain. And we're finally finding what it is that we truly want. When we find what it is that we truly want, whether it's good or bad, we could compare it to what Hashem wants or to what we feel Hashem wants. That's when you get to a place where if you could give it all up, if you're willing to give it all up for Hashem, that's when you're in a better place to ask Him for anything. So not only are you free of your burden, if, you, if you're actually ready to give it up, you're suddenly free of the burden of the bakasha and the thing that you want so badly, you could also ask God at that plane to help you change your ratzon because you yourself cannot change your ratzon. You cannot change what it is that you want. Now, this is a very advanced thing. People have to, would have to, sp- you have to spend time on this. You'd have to spend time searching for your, the makar of your desire and, you know, figuring out what it is that you want and how you want it and is it appropriate that you want it? Is it the best thing for you? Is it something God is going to give into your life? But what's important about asking a bakasha is that we have to be ready to, to hear no. If we're not ready to hear no, we have no right, to, we kind of have no right to ask for it if we're on the level. If, if we're on the level and we understand and we're, and we're good at tefillah and we've have a real relationship with Hashem, we have to sometimes realize that we have to be ready to hear no. How do you hear the no? Well, life experience. <laughs> if it happens, if, if you don't get what you want. Yeah, but you could ask for it now, but Hashem decides it's not going to be until six months from now. Exactly. So you don't know if it's a no now or it's a... Yeah, you, you never know. So sometimes it's really an inner journey. It's an introspection. It's a hispalel, nullification to seeing what your desires are and why you actually want them. It's analyzing your own bakashot, your own desires, and getting closer to destroying your ego, getting closer to Hashem, by trying to align your ratzon with His, and getting it closer there, and accepting what, however He leads your life. However He leads your life along, you're going to be okay with, as long as you know that your will is aligned with His. That's the part of the avodah, it's a service, it's a sacrifice. We have to sacrifice the things we want, and try to make ourselves less egotistical and try to get ourselves closer to what God wants our life to be like and work from there. That's, again, these are down the road. You know, we all have to get, we'll get there eventually in our lives. We'll get throughout life, life experience will all teach us more about our desires, more about our relationship with ourselves and Hashem, but practical solutions. All right, so we're not all going to get into meditations and we're not all going to become, you know, Babasali overnight. So the first practical solution is to practice. Um, you know, you could pull out one of Rabbi Kaplan's books. He has a practical guide in Jewish meditation. Um, there's a guy in Eretz Rabbi Katz, who, Rabbi Daniel Katz, who has a whole course on meditation. It's very worthwhile to practice meditation, as long as you're not taking from Asian sources. Worthwhile to, to, to practice, to get better at it, because A, self-mastery. B, Avodat Hashem. These are to, to get, not only to own ourselves, but to get... And not only to get better at ourselves and to be metakinamidot, but there's many benefits beyond that of service of Hashem, for which my uh, meditation are very powerful. Furthermore, simple one is to buy a better sidur. Some people don't really understand half the words they're saying, and buying a sidur with a translation, or buying a sidur which is prettier, or something that you can be better at, it can actually be beneficial to your davening. Um, instead of like picking one up every time you go to shul and you know not even having one in your, in your talit bag. Lastly, and this is the one I the one I want. Just take these tzaddik ches in the in the in Mishnah The most obvious, literally the most obvious way to get better at davening is the one which 
I have found works the best for me, and it's you don't need any training or meditation. It's page Shin uh, Samachei, so it's all the way in the back. Uh, here, let me take this. So this is the Shulchan Aruch. If you would think about it, like, if you wanted to know how to better have Kavanah, where should you look? Well, maybe the guide. <laughs> maybe we should open up the Shulchan Aruch and see what he actually says. And he says something so basic and so beautiful. He says, person who prays has to have, he, he quotes our Gemara, person has to direct his heart. He has to understand the words coming out of his mouth. And he has to imagine as if the Shechina is in front of him. And this is the, the line I actually wanted to focus on, which is he says you should clear out your mind of all the things that busy it until your, your mind and your concentration is clear and ready to pray. And imagine like you're, like you're standing in front of the, a king of, uh, of flesh and blood. If you were standing in front of a flesh and blood king, wouldn't you prepare all your words? You would do that in front of the king of all kings, which is God. This is what the original Hasidim Harishonim used to do. We know the Mishnah and Brachot says the Hasidim Harishonim used to meditate for an hour before they prayed. And then they would pray for an hour and then they meditate an hour after to come back down. They would meditate. They, until they came to a level where they could shed all materialism and to the strength of the intellect until they came close to Nivuah. The Hasidim HaRishonim were the first Talmidim of the Anshei Knesset HaGedola. They could not reach Nivuah because as we explained last week they closed off. Um, Nivuah. So the Hasidim HaRishonim were the first people to only reach the level of Hasidut, not the level of Nivuah. But they were very, very close to Nivuah through these meditations. But what, at the end of the day, what he's saying is something very simple. You can't run into davening every, every day, Mincha, Shachrit, Arvit, and just immediately start Shemona Asrei, immediately start Ashrei, because your mind is a buzz. There's no way you can go from thinking about work, from thinking about where you just parked, and running into Shemona Esrei, it's ne- your, ne- your mind's never going to be ready to start davening. It's a very simple solution, and it's worked for me, and I know it's worked for a lot of people, is to come to davening four minutes early, five minutes early, and you sit down, and you can close your eyes, you can open your eyes, whatever you want to do. I suggest closing your eyes, and think just a few things. Number one, let your mind relax. Think about what you're thinking about. You know, breathe, let, let everything calm down. Get in control of your thoughts. You don't have to control them exactly, but be mindful of your thoughts. See them come, see them go. And then ask yourself what you davened about last time. Ask yourself how that's affected your life. What do you want to daven about this time? And if you're ready to daven, and that's it. Those three minutes, four minutes, sometimes five minutes can make the world of a difference to tefillah because when you actually start ashray, when you actually start, you know, uh, arvit or shachrit, you're actually in a frame of mind which is much clearer. You're ready to approach the words instead of just, you know, we come into shul and we turn on our mouth. We don't turn on our mind because we're in such a rush. You know, sometimes the shiach zibur just starts and goes, he just goes to the races. So sometimes we have to relax our mind, let our mind get ready, and then start the tefillah. It's, it's a really simple thing, and it exponentially changes your tefillah. Calm the mind, clear it, 
think about your davening, what you need to daven for, what you daven about last time, and ask yourself if you're ready to daven. The answer could be no. You're not ready to daven, but you could try, ask yourself the question again, maybe meditate on the words, am I ready to daven, am I ready to daven, get your minds on those words only, and then start davening as well as you can. I mean, as long as you're doing tefillah b'tzibur. It works wonders. It's very easy. It's beginner. You don't need to be a master of meditation to do it. And it's right there in the Shulchan Aruch. Just clear your mind before you daven. Show up a few minutes early. Sometimes you could read Korbanot, like Mincha. Sit down. Say little shame Yichud with Kavanah. I don't want to... Here we are coming to be Mekayim the Mitzvah of Tefillat Mincha. Start the Korbanot. Maybe during Korbanot your mind will relax. Etc. There's a, there's a million ways to do this, and it's subjective. Honestly, I can't tell anybody about how to meditate or how to think. You know, <laughs> no one can tell you how to think, but we have to prepare our minds and not just turn on our mouths. Okay, so now that we've got started with that introduction, now we can finally understand the structure of the Sidur. Shachrit is split into seven sections, right? We climb one, two, three, four. The fourth is the highest level of consciousness. Then we go down. We do something called the Ridat Shefa. We bring down the um, goodness which we achieved at the high level. We bring it down uh, five, six, seven, down three levels. One, two, three. Fourth is the highest. Five, six, seven. We come back down to earth. That's how it's structured according to states of consciousness. Now, each one of these sections of tefillah is, is designed against um, a different world, right? We know there's four quote-unquote worlds. Um, these worlds are not worlds of distance, they're worlds of creation, of relationship to Hashem. There's the world of Atzilut. This is a universe of Atzilut. Atzilut means nearness. This is the closest um, magnitude to Hashem. It's, an, it's a universe where nothing really can exist. Only Hashem's light is in that universe. That's the, the universe of nearness. Then you have after that, and from that universe comes all the power for creation. The next universe is called Olam Habriya, right? That's the universe of creation. That's where the first concepts are created by Hashem's light, which come down from Atzilut. The next universe is known as Olam Hayetzira, <coughs> the world of formation, because all the concepts <coughs> and axioms which are created in the Olam Habriya, ex nihilo, something from nothing, those are take form and take shape in the Olam Hayetzira, the world of formation. The last one underneath that is Olam Hasiyah. From Yitzirah comes down to Asiyah, to the world of actualization, the world of action, which is our world. And this is actually how our minds are, are built. Our minds start with Atzilu. This is how Hashem created the world, first of all. First came His, his Ratzon, His will. Then came the Machshava, which is in Bria, that created... Ex, everything ex nihilo, then came the dibur, then came the actualization. As Hashem said, let there be light, and then it actualized. This is how our minds are built and how our neshamot are built. Our minds are built with first will, then idea. First, I, the will, right? We see a open land, we want to build a building. It's an idea for a building. Then comes the etzirah, the form of what type of building. And then comes the actualization when you hire the contractors. That's how our minds are built. Our neshama is also built similar, similarly to that. We have Anishama uh, at the highest, under that is Ruach, under that is, uh, I'm sorry, Nish, ne, uh, cha, sorry, highest is Chaya, that's from the, from the world of Atzilut, the highest is Chaya. Uh, chaya. Uh, there's something higher than that, it's called Yechida, but it's not important for us. Um, so you have the highest is Chaya, then Nishama, Ruach, Nefesh, right? So Chaya comes from Atzilut. You have Ruach, that, that part of your Nishama comes from Bria. 
Then you have, I'm sorry. Chaya comes from Atzilut. Neshama comes from Bria. Ruach comes from Yitzira. And Nefesh comes from Asiya. Nefesh is in our blood. It's, uh, it's our life force itself. Okay, so why does, why does it matter for us? The first, the Brachot. Right? The section of the Brachot in, in the Sidur is the first world. It's the lowest one. That's Olam HaAsiya. Everything that exists in our world. We talk about putting on our shoes, putting on our belt, hearing the rooster cry, Korbanot happened in this world. We mentioned Akedakos that happened in this world. We connect this physical world to the spiritual world just by making a mental connection. By thinking about the physical, we make all of our physical things spiritual. The world of consciousness that our minds, the state of consciousness that the Achegnesa Tagadola wanted us to be in in Olam was very basic, very mindful, all in this world. The next level is called the Olam Ha... Sorry, going up a level. That's Olam Ha So Olam Ha as we just said, in our brain space, is speech. Where you have will, thought, speech, action. So the Olam Ha represents speech. That's where we give Shvach to Hashem. That's where we praise Hashem with our mouths. The meditations involve uh, the contemplation, focusing on how we speak, our mouths, the movement, our breath. All of these things are actual parts of the meditations in the world of Yetzirah. And you'll see in the Sidurim, it says in the beginning, Olam Ha, in the Kichavadat, you'll see it says Olam Ha uh, Before Suke de Zimra, it'll say Olam Ha Yetzirah. And the Mikvalim say something very interesting. The word Pesuke de Zimra means the words of song, right? But Zimra can also mean to cut, to cut off. That's because the Pesuke de Zimra let us cut off from the world of Yetzirah and go higher into the world of Bria. They cut us off from this world. We're done with action and speech. We're going into the world of thought. Olam Abriyah is the world of the angels. It's the world, the Briyah is where Nishamot come from. As we said, Briyah is the level Briyah and, um, uh, sorry, we said Nishama was created in the Olam of Briyah a second ago. Chayah Zatzilut. Nishama was created in Briyah. That's where the Nishama comes from. Uh, Malachim are there, which is why in the Brachot of Kriyat Shema, we discuss the angels, we discuss their praise, we discuss the cosmos, the sun, the moon, all the things that exist in the higher realms of Olam Haburiyah. Um, then we get to Shemona Esrei, which is the highest level, the Olam HaTzilut of nearness. So you're in God's throne room, it's the highest level that's above thought, and that's why there are 18 Brachot, because everything in the Olam HaTzilut is called Chai, like Chaya, 18. That's where the source, the essence of life force comes. After that, we have the Kaddish and the Yehishem. Those take, the Tachnun takes you downwards into the Olam HaBriya again, very briefly. And then we go back into Olam HaYetzirah with uh, Shvach, which is Ashrei Uvalitzion. Then we go back to Korbanot, which is Olam HaSiyan, Aleinu. All that is Olam HaSiyan. So we're basically taking all the Shefa and all the Ar that we got from Olam HaTzilut, and we're taking it back down with us. And you'll find in many Sidurim, I can pull one out, but they all, they all say HaTzilut, Yitzira HaSiyan, right before you do it, to know what state of consciousness you're in. I'll show it to you right after the Shior. Okay. Now, just as an introduction to what we're going to see in the next, I don't know, couple dozen shirim. Um, there's different design patterns that we'll find in the, um, the Sidur. Some of them are famous, some of them are pointed out by separate people. Um, Rabbi Sachs points out two that I think are very interesting. There's a, desi- there's a type of design called fractalist design. You ever heard of a, a fractal? So a fractal is a mathematical or geometrical concept where you have the same 
attached architecture at different levels of magnitude. For example, very posh it, a rock looks like a mountain. A rock looks like a mountain. Little crystals, or crystals under a microscope, look like bigger crystals. Because the same pattern of their architecture repeats at different orders of magnitude. A tree has a root and then branches. You go underneath the ground, and there's a root and more branches. You look at a leaf, and the veins have a, have a trunk and branches. And you don't have to be a genius to understand why this is. Branches are the best way of delivering nutrients. But because the, the architecture is the same, and because the architecture has to do the same thing over and over, we see this repeated, the same pattern repeated over and over. So we discussed, yeah, different sizes. So we saw, so this fractalist design is something you see in the Sidur. We see, for example, um, we spoke about Shvach, Bakashah the three sections that make up, that constitute a proper tefillah. So we have the first section of tefillah is basically Shvach, the middle is Bakashah, the end is Hoda'ah. And then inside Shmona Esrei, we have that again. The first three brachot are shvach, middle are bakashot, the last three are hoda'ah. And then inside some of the brachot themselves, we also structure it that way. For example, you have ata gibor, ata It starts off with a praise, ata gibor Hashem. Then in the middle, it asks, it has bakashot, like rofei cholim, etim. Then at the end is a hoda'ah, baruch Hashem, you are the source of all blessing, Hashem, mechayim etim. So we see this design because this is the architecture of a proper tefillah. It repeats itself and repeats itself and repeats itself. It goes inwards and inwards and inwards. Very simple concept, just fancy words to describe it. The next um, pattern that you see is called um, mirror imaging. In, in, in poetry, it's known as chiasmus or chiastic structure. So it's very popular in, in poetry, like for example, not just poetry, but as a literary device. So for example, the Pasuk says, Shofech dam ha'adam. Adam, Adamo Yishafech. So it's A B C, C B A, right? Shofech Dam Adam, Ba Adam Damo Yishpoch. So you see that many times. For example, the Ashkenazim and Kiddush Halavana, they say the Shuat Chakiviti Hashem, and then they do it backwards. Mirror imaging is something that's often done in in the Tefillah. What are examples of that? Um, in Brachot, we do this a lot. For example, when you say a Bracha, the end of the Bracha, the closing of the Bracha, is like the beginning. So let's say modim anachnulach, right? We start that bracha with hoda'a. Then we say v'alklamit barachet shimcha. The second part is about shem Hashem. That's A and B. Then when we close it, we say baruch atah Hashem. Hatov shimcha ulchana el hodot. We go backwards. A, B, B, A. It's always a mirror image. It's interesting philosophically. I mean, for example, by Damo Yishafech, that perhaps in a world of true din, of true justice, what you do and what happens to you is a reflection exactly of what you do. It's a mirror image to a degree. But for some reason, the Chazal always very often chose to formulate our tefillah like a, um, like a, with mirror imaging. We see this in Aleinu. This is why we end tefillah with Aleinu. Aleinu has two parts. Aleinu l'shebech donakol and then ve'alken. So generally in tefillah, we start talking about the universal, and then we move down to the particular. We talk about everyone first, or all the, the umot, and then we move down and we go into the particulars about Klai Israel ourselves. We talk about everyone's needs, and we talk about our personal needs. That's generally how the tefillah is structured. That's why at the end, when it comes to Aleinu, we reverse it, because we're mirror imaging and we're closing. So, Aleinu l'shabeach l'adonakol 
is the individual. It talks about Klai Yisrael. He chose us. The Alkei Kabbalah talks about the Yomot HaOlam. It talks about all the nations of the world and how eventually they're going to praise Hashem. So we close off davening with a with a mirror image of everything we just did. That's why it's Eleni was the last uh, tefillah. Um, we see we're going to see a million uh, numerical structures. For example, two, which is repetition. We'll see three, which is like, you know, we'll see four, which is always going to represent the four worlds, almost always seven, uh, which is binya, is a form of binyan, also sh- the seven brachot of Shabbat. We, in every Shabbat we say seven brachot in the, in the tefillah. Um, we see ten, which represents the sefirot. We see eleven, um, which is a concept of the, of the, of the ketoret. We see thirteen, which is a type of um, shleimut, a type of very strong binyan. Um, it, we see that in Yishtabach, it's a full praise. Uh, we have fifteen. The whole thing is 15. That represents the 15 steps in the Beit HaMikdash. The, I think it was 15 years that both lived together. Number 15 exists in Tefillah also. Uh, we see the number 18, Chai, Shemona Esrei. We see 100, which is the Mea Brachot B'chol Yom. Our Tefillah is structured around to get to 100 Brachos. One more thing we see, another structure, is acronyms and acrostics, right? So we have uh, the first letter of a couple of words stands for something, or you know, stands for a name, or stands for Aleph uh, Bet, um, right? We see alphabetical acrostics very often. Many times in tefillah we see alphabetical acrostics. Now there's a lot of reasons why why we do an alphabetical acrostic. One of them is that it kind of it, it's it's a it's a very daring thing to do, which is why a lot of paitanim don't do it. But it's it's signifying it's connoting shleimut, completeness. You're testifying that you're about to say a complete shvach. That's not chaser anything. That's not missing anything. So it's a very daring thing to do, which is why many paitanim shy away from doing it. Um, Ashrei, David HaMelech did it. We have Shia Kavod we spoke, spoke about where they do it. Um, another very famous time we do it is Kel Baruch Gidol Deya in, uh, in Shema. Hechin or Hitzkin. Ufa'al Zahare Chama Tov Yatsar Kavod That whole piyut. Very interesting story about that piyut. In Yotzer R, they used to say in the olden days, they used to say a lot of piyutim. In the olden days, weekday, Shabbat, they used to add a lot more into there. As generations passed by, they started deleting more of them for the purity. They wanted the tefillah to be exactly as it was. Most scholars suspect that Kel Baruch Gedol is the only surviving one that we still say. Um, and they suspect that it was written by Rabbi Elazar HaKalir, who's one of the most prolific, earliest Paitanim. He lived in like the 6th or probably the 6th or the 7th century, about, a, uh, what is that, five, 1,500 years ago. One of the earliest, uh, most godly of the, of the Paitanim. The story goes, this is brought in Eitz Yosef in the Sidur, and he brings it from a, a Sidur written by a Mikubal named uh, Rav, Hertz, Rav Hertz Shliach Sibor. He was a, a Mikubal who lived in Ashkenaz a long time ago in the, in the 16th century. They made a Sidur. He wrote a Sidur, Alpiya Kabbalah. And he says there that it, there's a Midrash about Rabbi Yossi HaKalir. I don't know what a Midrash means because he, he was probably in the time of the Moraim, but he says, we have a, a story of Rabbi Lazar HaKalir that when he began writing his poetry, 
he went up to Shemayim and he asked the Malach Michael, how do the, how do the angels, he asked the angel Michael, how do the angels sing praise to Hashem? What do they do? How do they formulate their praise? And he answered him, Be'alphabeta, with Aleph base. Whenever they say Shvach, they use alphabetical acrostics. And therefore, when he came back down, this is how Elazar Kalir writes most of his, most of his piyutim. He writes Aleph Beit Gimel Dalid. And he says, this is the reason why Kel Baruch Gedol Daya ends with Misapirim Kivod Kel. Mem Chaf Aleph Lamed, Michael. Because he received this Eitzah from Michael. So, uh, uh, what's the end of it? Uh, the last the last four words, I believe, are Misapirim Kivod Kel. The one is done with uh, Taf. I don't... I, I don't have it in my in my brain memorized. Okay, rhyme and meter. Rhyme is very rare in tefillah. Early forms of literature don't employ rhyme for some reason. I, it's not clear to me why. They might have thought that it was childish. I'm not sure, but rhyme is very rare in in early tefillot. Meter as well, because these were external forms, and apparently they didn't want to you know, constrain everything into external forms. The only time, I think, in Shachrit that we see rhyme is Kel Baruch Kedol Daya, Hechi Nufal, Zorei Chama, Tov Yatzar Kivol Deshmo, Norot Natan, Sivivot Uzo, these all rhyme. I don't know of another place where we actually, I can't think of the top of my head of another place where we, uh, where we rhyme. Uh, one more structure we see obvious, I mean, it's so obvious you don't even have to say it, is the responsive. The responsive form is very, very popular. We say Amen, we say Baruch Hu Hashem we say Haluka, we say Hallel, we repeat everything, Kadosh Kadosh, Hashem Yimloch Lolam Ba'ed, many times we repeat, there's many reasons why we, we, there's different reasons why we repeat, sometimes it's just involve the Kahal, sometimes it's so the Kahal, the, the Chazan, we want the Chazan to say it once so everyone should know what to say and they repeat it after him, sometimes it's that it's for us and Hashem, sometimes it's one, like we say it once for ourselves, once for Hashem. Sometimes we say it once on Gashmiut and once on Ruchniut. For example, Ana Hashem Oshiana, Ana Hashem Oshiana. One time we say it for the material, one time we say it for the spiritual. Ana Hashem Atzichana, Ana Hashem Atzichana. We repeat it. Um, and lastly, uh, the one that you'll see, which you'll barely see in Tefillah, is musical structure. Um, the Sidurim, I'm just mentioning it because you'll see it in Sidurim, but it's not real, but it's there. Um, you'll see them put... They'll put it into like a column or something. It's not there by design. It's there highly subjectively because that community happens to sing that stanza. You'll see that Nishmat Kolchai in some Sidurim is printed in columns like the Sfaradim sing it. In some communities it's just straight, everything straight. It's Taloyim in Hagamakom, but music is something external to tefillah and it's not actual it's subjective to the community it's not something which was designed like that didn't say okay these are the songs that everyone should sing it just ended up happening that way that different communities did different things okay that's so much for structure i think next week we'll talk about the beginning of tefillah um however i don't think we're going to talk about modani uh, first because most people start with Modani not realizing, like the first thing they research is Modani and they don't realize that Modani is actually an abbreviation of Elokai Neshama. Um, it was, it's a very, very, very clever abbreviation of Elokai Neshama, but the history of it we'll discuss was that they didn't want to say Shem Hashem when they woke up and say Elokai Neshama. So before they washed their hands, 
mitzvah stay composed in abbreviation of Elkayin Shema, which is Modim, so which is Modayani. So if we discuss Modayani first, we're going to have to reference Elkayin Shema five times. So I might as well wait until we get to Elkayin Shema. So I think Bezat Hashem next week we'll start with Anetilat Yedaim, Asher Yatzar, and then we'll get to Elkayin Shema. We'll go back to Modayani because that makes the the most sense. But uh, that is what it is.